I'm going to be reading from John, the last verse in chapter 7, and then going in through verse 8 through um, 8, 1 through 11. This is the woman caught in adultery. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and, he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. What a story that we're about to look into. And what an honor it is, isn't it, to have the Word of God read, to sit under it, to let it be our authority, to willingly, gladly yield our lives to it. So that's a feature that we're going to be adding into our services. And a lot of you are going to have the opportunity to come up and read and to have that privilege, to have that honor, to be able to read the Word of God. This is a church that will always be preaching the Word of God. If you come here, you're only going to be hearing the explanation from the Word. And so I want to invite you and encourage you, if you haven't yet, to open up to John chapter 8. Let's all get it open. And if you're watching this from home, let's go ahead and get your Bible open and get your smartphones open if that's what you're using. And while you're doing that, let me take you back over 2,000 years. It was Friday at noon. And the sun was plunged into, into darkness all over Jerusalem. And a terrified cry pierced the gloom. In Aramaic, it went, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In English, it goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the piercing cry of Jesus Christ as the guilt and the sin of billions, or the guilt of billions of sins was being laid on him as God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now let's get really into the theology of that for a moment. That's not a scary word. Let's really dig into that for a moment. The guilt and the death that sinners earned was given to Jesus at noon on that cross, who willingly died in our place. The just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, crucified for you and crucified for me. 
You know, John 3.16 is a really famous verse. I would imagine that a lot of us have it memorized. But maybe we should memorize verse 17 if we haven't already. And it goes like this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I want you to hear that again because this now sets the stage for the woman that we're about to meet that Caleb read all about. Here's what verse 17, John 3 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, listen, Jesus is the God of grace. And we are about to meet one of the millions of people who have received his grace, one who was forgiven, one who was set free from all divine condemnation. Let's get our Bibles open. John chapter 8. It begins with Jesus who is teaching in the temple of Jerusalem early in the morning. Are you an early morning person? It would be really legalistic for me to take this verse and tell you that God's will is for you to be early morning people. That's not right if I were to say that. But if you want to be a godly person, you probably should. All right, that was terrible. Not true at all. But Jesus is early in the morning in the temple at Jerusalem, and a group of scribes and Pharisees drag a humiliated young woman to his feet. He's sitting, he's teaching. Here comes a commotion. You've got scribes. You know what they are, right? They're experts in the law. They're like seminary professors. And you've got Pharisees who are like Jewish pastors. So you've got professors and you've got pastors. And they're dragging this woman to the feet of Jesus. And they tell him in verse 3, look at your text, that she's an adulterer. And then they get a little more specific in verse 4. She has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we're going to have children in our services more, so I've got to be really wise about this. But if you're an adult and you understand this, or if you're adult enough to understand this, I mean, I want you to get the picture. She's been caught in the act. And she should have been taken to the Sanhedrin. That's a group of 71 rulers of the Jewish people. That was court. And these are the court officials. Basically, the supreme court body of the Jewish people. And that's who they really acted, or that's how they acted. And they should have taken her to the Sanhedrin, but they brought her before Jesus. Look at verse 5. Now, in the law, they say, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? Now, this is a trap. And by the way, if you haven't figured that out, the Bible and just another verse is going to tell you it's a trap. It's a trap that they're setting for him. And this poor, sinful woman is the bait. And Jesus knows what they're doing. What have they been doing? I want you to kind of understand a little bit of the backdrop, a little bit of the context. Look back at chapter 7 if you want. You can skim through it. I won't take the time to show you every verse. But all through chapter 7 we read that they were trying to find evidence to arrest Jesus. You know why, right? Because 
He was becoming so popular, and the people were following him, and they're not following them. And they're wondering and whispering, is this the Messiah? And all of these Pharisees and all these scribes and all these priests were threatened. So they're trying to arrest him. They're trying to shame him. And they failed repeatedly all through chapter 7. Now they're trying a new tactic. And verse 6 says what it is, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, if you haven't figured out the complexity of this trap, I'm going to explain it to you because absolutely it is brilliant. It looks like there's no way he's going to get out of this. Because if he said to stone her, they could report him to Rome, the governor, Pilate, because it was illegal for the Jews to carry out capital punishment without the Roman authority. Only one way they could, or only for one reason, and that is if a Gentile went into the interior of the temple of God beyond where they could go. They could kill that person, execute them on the spot. Other than that, they had to get Roman permission. So if he said stone her, they've got a reason to bring it before the governor. But if he said, who is the friend of sinners, if Jesus said, don't stone her, they could report him to the Sanhedrin under the charge of heresy. He's denying the authority of the law of Moses. The law of Moses said that adulterers, by the way, both parties, were to be executed. It seems like the perfect trap. Let me get you a little deeper behind the trap. Let's go a little bit more into the Word of God. Let's peek behind the scene of this woman's life for a moment because there are clues here if we want to look at them. The law of Moses did condemn adultery, and the penalty was the execution of both parties, the guy and the girl. But stoning, now listen, stoning was only one of four methods for Jewish capital punishment. And it was not specified in one of the two teachings about how to deal with an adulterer. The other one, though, though it does. You see, if a girl was betrothed, that means engaged. It's a little bit like that. It's stronger than our engagement. But if she is betrothed, and she's adulterous. Now, you're getting this? She's not quite yet married. She's under Jewish betrothal, incredibly strong. You don't ever really break that. You've got to have a divorce to even break a betrothal. If she's betrothed and she's adulterous, now the law of Moses is very specific. And the law says both parties must be stoned. Now, I told you there's some clues here. Here's one of our clues to this woman. When the religious rulers mention stoning, it is a very cl good clue that this woman was likely betrothed, and guess what? Betrothal for Jewish women happened at ages 13 and 14 almost always. While you cannot be certain, we should not be dogmatic, it is likely that this was a very young woman, mid-teens, Likely, again, we don't know, seduced by an older married man. But notice that the man was not brought before Jesus with her. 
She's facing the trial alone and terrified. Her fate hangs on the answer of this rabbi named Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. I hope you listen. Every Jewish woman knew that rabbis were mercilessly cruel to ladies that were caught in adultery. Stoning was frightening. They took the victim up a two-story building or a cliff of the same height. And they threw the person off and sometimes, but not always, the fall itself would kill them. But here's what would happen next, and this is where it gets even more incredibly terrifying. You always had to be condemned by two to three witnesses. And the witnesses who condemn you at your trial are the ones that have to pick up large rocks and throw them over the roof or over the cliff to finish the victim off. And if the victim is not finished then, then all of those who gathered as witnesses had to pick up rocks and throw them until the person was no longer alive. That's how they did stoning. It's terrifying. Now, I'm telling you this a little bit detail. I'm trying to spare you from even more gruesome details because I know we've got young ears here. But I want to tell you this so that you can get into the sandals of this woman. Can you, can you feel her fear? She's likely young. Can you imagine a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old hauled before this rabbi Jesus and they're talking about stoning you? And the person that likely, if she was that young, probably seduced her, fled. Or he was the bait for the trap. Meanwhile, what is Jesus doing? Verse 6. He bent down and he began to write with his finger on the ground. And while he wrote, these merciless, look at the tense. The merciless religious leaders keep trying to spring the trap. They keep saying, Rabbi, what do you think we should do? What does the law say? What are we supposed to do? They keep repeating it over and over and over. So he stands, verse 7. And he says, now standing is the posture of a prophet. Standing was a posture of a preacher sitting was more the posture of a teacher he stands and he says let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her and then he bends back down and he begins to write once again on the ground now for some of you your mind is is filling in a word that's not in the text sand there is no sand this is the temple it was scrupulously kept clean He's writing with his finger on the rocks of the temple. And for some, they speculate what he was writing. We don't know, so we've got to be careful. When John Calvin once said that when God shuts his mouth, we should cease to speculate. So we've got to be really, really careful. Some of us, or some people rather, think that maybe he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Others think that he was writing out the sins of each one of those men and the names of the men that went with it. He knows the secrets of each of us. I'm going to suggest to you what I think he might have been writing, and I don't know. This is truly, purely speculation, so we're on thin ice. But I'm going to suggest what he may have been writing, and that is the prophecy of Jeremiah 17, 13. It's likely, or at least it's possible, that Jesus was fulfilling 
prophecy in this moment. Here's what it says. O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now I'm going to tell you why I think that might have been what he was writing. Eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Look at the separation of chapter 1. They're going to their homes. He's going out to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany. They're separating even there. There's a bit of a motif of separation in verse 1, right before this story. But these men had forsaken the Lord, these scribes and the Pharisees. They were heaping up the law of God on people without mercy, without love, without even trying to help them. This is why Jesus indicted them in Matthew 23. They had forsaken the Lord. But I want to give you something that's even more interesting. You got your Bibles open? Go back to chapter 7, verse 36, and you're going to see where I think the tie-in is. Look what he says in verse 36 and verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let me read to you Jeremiah 17, verse 13 again. O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Whatever it was that he wrote, it sprang their trap on themselves. And look what happens in verse 9. They went away one by one. Now get this, this is a really important little detail, beginning with the older ones. The older ones had the authority. The older ones had the power. They had the influence. They're the first ones whose consciences were stricken by whatever Jesus wrote and by what he said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. Now they leave. And by the way, to me, they're just a peripheral part of the story. Now we get to the real meat of it. We get to back to the lady. We get back to the woman whom I think was likely very young. What of the adulterous woman? What of the bait for the trap? What's going to happen to her? They leave, verse 9, in verse 10, Jesus stands back up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Now, now let's stop for a second, because that's abrasive to some of you ladies. Woman, that's not a term of contempt in that culture, not at all. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she answers in verse 11, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Or in other words, do not continue in your adulterous immorality. Now this is the best part of the message. And this is the part where we really need to learn. The only one there who was without sin who could have rightly condemned her, refused. Utterly unlike the religious people who, who hauled her to the temple. Now I want you to think about the adulterous man who fled. He, he set her up, as some speculate, who knows. 
He doesn't receive the grace of God. This woman receives the grace of God. And here's one of our best principles. There is no safer place to ever be than at the feet of Jesus. It doesn't matter how sinful you think you are. The only and the best place you want to be is at the feet of Jesus. Yet God will not, and I, hear, I hope you hear this, now we're really into theology, and this is the gospel. And if you miss this, you miss the entire point of this story. God will not, he cannot, arbitrarily overlook a person's sins like a bribed, unjust judge. He just cannot do it. He's holy. His holiness demands a just response. Sin always demands death. Whether or not you think that's fair, whether or not your perspective can understand that, sin always demands death. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Something, someone has to die. So if Jesus will not condemn her, verse 11... If he's not going to condemn her, then he has to die her death. There is absolutely no other way that he could tell her, neither will I condemn you. He is God in the flesh. You know, I once saw a t-shirt that had a picture of the Buddha nailed to the cross, and it was captioned, quote, what's wrong with this picture? I've been trying to find that t-shirt, I'm not lying to you, since 1995. That's when I first saw it. I cannot find it anywhere. Do you ever hear of Allah crucified? Or Muhammad is prophet dying for salvation? Or any of the millions of Hindu gods nailed to a cross to save their worshipers? See, this is what sets Christ, this is what sets the gospel and Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion is what you have to do to please your God. In Christianity, it is what God did to please his holy demands. The only way that Jesus could not condemn this young, adulterous woman was to die in her place and take her punishment for her sins on himself. And friends, that's grace. You want to know how you ought to be defining grace? Here it is. It is God's willing favor to take away our sins and guilt by the death of his son. I'm going to read it again. Grace is God's willing favor to take away our sins and our guilt by the death of his son. But I want you to really think on this. What did this woman do to merit, to deserve, to earn the grace of Jesus Christ? And the answer is nothing. She did everything to not get his grace. She was caught in the act of adultery. Yet Jesus gives it to her of his own initiative. And I think it's because of one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Psalm 85 verse 10. It says this, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's a prophecy of Jesus. She sinned. She separated herself from God. Justice must be done and justice would be done. On noon, 
on that Friday as Jesus hung on the cross, she would be one of the millions whose sin and guilt would be poured out on him, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Do you see how Jesus could say, I will not condemn you? It's because your sins will be placed on me. So let me give you grace that you can borrow from the future and go and have the power to no longer keep sinning. See, in that cry at noon on the cross, Jesus became the object of the Holy Father's wrath as if he was the one caught in the act of adultery. And because of his grace, she had become the one without sin. And this is precisely what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. It's the exact same truth. That day of her greatest shame became the day of her greatest favor. As the grace of God set her free. Giving her, giving her the power to go and live a life that is pleasing to God. So as I close, let me present a couple ways of application. And this is going to be brief. First of all, is there anybody here and anybody watching whose sins are still on you. There's only two options in life. Now, I hope you hear this. Ready? Your sins are either on you, and you're bearing it in your own soul, and the guilt is all yours, or your sin and your guilt has all been placed on Jesus. There is not a third option. Have you come to the feet of Jesus? Whether somebody brought you there, or you came of your own volition, brought there by the Spirit of God. Have you come to the feet of Jesus and recognized in him the God of grace, who is willing and will give you his favor to take away your sins and your guilt through the death, burial, and resurrection of his Son? Well, let me ask you one more question. Let's say this many of you have. Let's say that many of you have already come to Christ. Your sins have been put on him. All of the guilt, all of the shame put on him. You're free. You are without sin before the eyes of the Father. Just like this woman. Do you believe that? Does your life bear that truth out? Because if you're riddled with shame, you don't believe that. And if you're trying to clean up your acts, you don't believe that. And if you're doubting that God truly could love you in the worst of your life, you don't believe that. Not to the point where it can set you free. This woman would tell you, Hebrews 12 is one of your witnesses up in those stadium stands while you and I are running our race. She would tell you, you've got to believe it because it happened to me. And I was an adulterer. And I should have been stoned. But God freed my soul by dying for me. So that I could go and sin no more. Not repeat that adultery. Have the life, the power rather, to live a life pleasing to God. That's salvation. That's grace. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. For this woman, Lord, what a story. What an amazing story. 
And Lord, I would pray, and then I would ask, Lord, for everybody that's hearing this, Lord, whether they've been coming to church for their whole life, for, the, for years maybe, Lord, maybe something in this woman's story struck for the first time and opened their eyes to the incredible grace of God, the willing favor to forgive all of the sins and the guilt because of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, Father, that maybe somebody has put their faith in you through this. And Lord, I would pray for everybody that's here, Lord, who claims the name of Jesus. Lord, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as Pastor Matthew facilitates that, Lord, may this impress even more deeply into our souls the incredible grace of our God. That he who was without sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Thank you for Jesus, the God of grace that enables us to live free. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.